0: Richard described the joy of that day um, showing up with, with Raymond Donowski and maybe spending something like $150,000, $200,000 on books in, the, in a matter of hours, um, which is the sale in which Donowski acquired the copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass that had been owned by a friend of Whitman.
1: Thank you for joining the program today. I am Lily Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library, and you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversation, a series of interviews with people connected to our collections. This episode explores the vast holdings of the Raymond Danowski Poetry Library with scholar and poet Nick Stern in discussion with Nick Twimlow who is responsible for literary and poetry collection development at the Rose.
2: Hello, my name is Nick Twemlow, and I am the Poetry and Digital Humanities Librarian at the Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library at Emory University. I've been grateful to serve as a co-producer on this podcast series, which launched last October, and today I'm joining you in my capacity as the Head of Literary and Poetry Collection Development at The Rose. Specifically, I'm here to talk with Nick Sturm about the most amazing English language poetry collection I am aware of, the Raymond Donowski Poetry Library, which arrived in one crate after another at The Rose nearly 20 years ago. Today we'll talk about the history of this donation, explore the Donowski collecting mission and philosophy, learn a little bit about how book dealers operate, and much more about 20th century print poetry culture. If we have time, I will ask Nick about his thoughts on how the Donowsky should collect into this 21st century. So, a quick introduction of Nick Sturm. Nick is currently an NEH postdoctoral fellow in poetics at Emory University's Fox Center for Humanistic Inquiry. He is a scholar and poet with poems, essays, and reviews at Jacket 2, The Brooklyn Rail, Black Warrior Review, Penn, Poetry Foundation, The Best American Non Required Reading, and other publications. Nick is a graduate of the PhD program at Florida State University and Northeast Ohio Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Akron. He hails from the Midwest, Akron, Ohio to be specific, and lives in Atlanta, Georgia. I've had the pleasure to get to know Nick in my capacity as a relative newcomer to Emory in Atlanta, both as a person of interest in the poetry and small press world we both occupy, but also in my capacity at the Rose and Nick's Intense Literary Scholarship, which has drawn deeply on the Donowski Holdings. Outside of, and possibly even not outside of, Richard Aaron, a name that will come up in our discussion, I don't think there's anyone with this deep and comprehensive a knowledge of what the Janowski Collection contains than Nick. Nick, thanks for joining us on the Community Conversations podcast series.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
2: You just wrapped up a five-part Zoom series through the Fox Center that presented much of your scholarship and thinking on the Donowski. I thought it might make sense to start by asking you to tell us how you found your way to the Donowski Holdings, and then give us the history of the Donowski in five minutes.
0: Right. I'll see if I can get that in that, time, in that time frame. The first time that I came to the Rose Library was in 2014. I was still a PhD student in English at Florida State University. And I was taking a class on the New York School with Andrew Epstein at Florida State, who's one of the um, most well-known scholars of the New York School. And I got a hold of a bibliography of Ted Berrigan's work, and there was an entry in this bibliography for a novel called *Clear the Range*. And I was really familiar with Berrigan's poetry, and uh, but never knew that he had written a novel. But the description in the bibliography was so strange, it it described the book as a cross-out Western novel with a hamburger on the cover. (laughs) And this immediately piqued my interest. So I I tracked down a copy online, maybe $50, and realized that the book itself, Clear the Range, did not acknowledge that it was a cross-out novel um, or that it had another novel as its source text. I really didn't know what that meant at all. And... Um, I had some friends in Atlanta. I'd been planning a trip up here. So we decided to check out the Ted Berrigan and Alice Notley collection that is housed here at the Rose Library. And within the Ted Berrigan and Alice Notley collection, there is the, um, a lot of Ted Berrigan notebooks and correspondence. And then adjacent to that, we have here at The Rose the original Western pulp novel that Berrigan crossed out to create, Clear the Range. At first, I didn't know that that's what I was requesting. Um, the, uh, the catalog entry and the finding aid just listed as Clear the Range, um, and it's not totally apparent that it's this really unique, one-of-a-kind object that doesn't exist anywhere else. And I remember seeing this book for the first time. It's just like a little pulp paperback Western and it has all of Berrigan's um, literal crossouts in different colors of all the entries. I, from there, I was like, well, what else do we have here? <laughs> um, and so, uh, what is that? That's seven years ago now, and um, I couldn't even tell you how many hours I've spent in the reading room at the Rose. The history of the Danowski, what do I have now? Three minutes? Um, the Danowski was acquired by Emory in 2004, and at that time, Emory already had a really strong literary and poetry collection that Dr. Ron Schuhard had been building since the late 70s. And Emory was um, actually really— um, had made it a point in their collecting mission to um, build literary archives at a time when institutionally that wasn't really a focus of um, most large institutions um, from the late 70s onward. There had been a really large um, surge in institutional collecting following World War II. Um, if you're interested in more about that history, the recent book by Amy Hildreth Chen, uh, Placing Papers, The American Literary Archives Market, is a really, really incredible narrative of a certain um, sub-portion of that, that story of institutional collecting. But. Um,
2: and she's an um, Emory PhD grad. Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: right? Emory student worked in the Rose Library with Kevin Young when he was curator of the literary collections. And um, yeah, the, I mean, we'll get into more of the minutia of how the Donowski came here, but essentially, um, the the size and scope of the Donowski, which includes over seventy five thousand individual published books over 55,000 periodicals from 7,000 different magazines, journals, little magazines, and um, thousands of broadsides, ephemera, photographs, AV material, counterculture material. The size and scope of that collection totally changed the, um, the shape of the literary collections here at the Rose Library, which were already um, enormous and extensive and important, but um, really put the Rose Library on the map in terms of literary scholarship and um, its collection capacity.
2: So I'm curious if we could talk a little bit about who Raymond Donowski was, who was this figure, why, how did he get involved with collecting poetry, um, and just a little bit of his background, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, sure. So. Raymond Donowski is a really, really interesting character. Um, and like a lot of large literary collections at institutions across the United States, um, the name Raymond Donowski Poetry Library comes with the name of the collector behind it. But um, I'm thinking of other comparable collections like the Berg collection at the NYPL, um, which was built by two brothers um, and donated to the New York Public Library in 1940. These Previous collections that you know come with the names of the collectors tended to be um, wealthy um, business owners who had an interest in building large book collections as private libraries. and something like the Berg, which is really enormous um, for its for its time when it was established in nineteen forty, included something like um, I think it was thirty five thousand individual books. Um, but is mostly focused on the 19th century and the early 20th century, and mostly with um, modern first editions and high points. So they're really thinking about um, canonical authors um, when the Berg was established. And what Raymond Donowski chose to do in the early 70s is to build a collection of every book of poetry published in the English language in the 20th century, which um, as far as I know, hadn't occurred to anybody before to do. Um, it's a kind of impossible, completist collection collection methodology. Um, so Danowski imagined the collection as building this interconnected snowflake design, a kind of network of all of these voices across the 20th century, and not just poetry, but also material related to the counterculture and music and politics throughout um, the Anglophone world um, in the 20th century. It's strange how he had this idea. Um, In the early 1970s, Donowski was living in England, and he was friends with the bookseller, Bernard Stone, who ran the Turret bookstore in London, a a well-known sort of countercultural site and and, uh, well-known hanging out uh, place for for authors. And um, um, Bernard Stone was having some trouble paying the rent um, for his bookstore one month. And so Raymond Donowski offered to send, you know, a couple thousand pounds in return for any number of books how you know um, send me what this is worth and pretty soon after um, at the farm they were staying at he receives a truckload of books from Bernard Stone and begins unpacking this truckload of books into the barn and um, shelving it and Danowski described this later as the start of more than uh, more of a problem than a collection and what he meant by that was, That, you know, as someone who was interested in 20th century poetry, had a a real love for W.H. Auden um, and had grown up uh, working in libraries in New York City and um, understanding the value of, of reading and books in his own life. And what he started to see were these gaps in the collection that had been sent to him by Bernard Stone. And so from that point in the early 70s onward, he made it his life work to
2: fill in those gaps throughout the 20th century. So Donowski had a sense of what was missing. Do you know what he was thinking about, like specifically or more specifically about what was missing? And do you know, like what was there? And then in relation, therefore, how he figured out what was missing?
0: No, yeah, I don't know about that. It would be really interesting to find out what the, um, what the seed material was for the Donowski. I assume that, um, that Actually, a lot of it – The when I started to correspond with the bookseller Richard Aaron, who is um, the main bookseller who helped Donowski build this collection over about 25 years up until the late 90s, um, Richard was based in Switzerland um, at the time in the late 60s, um, had gotten into um, the bookselling trade um, in London through um, – his affiliation with Larry Walrich, who was the previous owner of the Phoenix bookshop in New York City. He sold, Walrich sold the Phoenix to Bob Wilson who owned it until it closed. Richard Aaron um, in the mid to late 70s first was put in contact with Donowski because someone was like, "Um, Richard, send Donowski one of your catalogs. And Donowski bought almost everything in the catalog from Richard Aaron, which Richard said got his attention. Um, and so Richard flew out to um, to England and visited Donowski in his barn to assess the scope of his collection. And Richard said that, uh, told Donowski kind of point blank, he'd already been collecting for a few years with this idea in mind. Richard told him point blank, um, you don't really have much. <laughs> and um, what he meant by that is, What you have is really a lot of canonical authors. You have, um, quote unquote, academic poets who are being published um, widely. Your collection doesn't show a lot of the experimental focus of the 20th century, and really none of the little magazines that were so pivotal in building um, literary communities throughout the 20th century. And so it was Richard Aaron's sort of intervention into Donowski's vision that really instigated creating the Donowski as we have it
2: today. At that point, how was Donowski sort of acquiring? Was he using a few uh, dealers, or was he mostly looking at catalogs, picking things up, that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I think it was kind of piecemeal at first. This is all, of course, before the Internet, so all of the book trade is happening via – um, print catalogs and phone calls and later faxes, um, and correspondence. So things move pretty slowly. And, um, my understanding is from the start that mainly, um, Donowski was working with Bernard Stone at the turret, um, and acquiring via his network. And, um, what the plan ended up becoming that Bernard Stone would be responsible for collecting Anglophone poetry in, um, in the UK and Ireland and continental Europe, um, and that when Richard Aaron came on board in the late '70s, that his scope would be um, the Americas, and that this would be the way that they would <laughs> build this um, snowflake collection of the 20th century. Eventually, over the years um, into the '80s, especially, it actually became almost a one-man job, where Richard Aaron took over um, Bernard Stone's collecting areas as his health declined. And it became this all encompassing material um, deluge for Richard Aaron. He said um, the amount of material moving in and out of his bookstore on a regular basis was just enormous. Um, he was buying entire bookstores, entire um, basements of other booksellers were being cleared out um, by Richard Aaron's purchases on behalf of Donowski. And they were also making splashes at some big, um, auctions. Um, in 1986, um, James Gilveray, um, the auction of his book collection, he had just passed away. He's a well-known collector of, um, Joyce material and other early rare Anglophone material. There was a big auction at Christie's and, um, Richard had been collecting on Donowski's behalf since 1978, so it had been eight years they had been building the collection together, but they never appeared together in public. Um, and this Christie's auction was the first time, um, and Richard described the joy of that day um, showing up with, with Raymond Donowski and maybe spending something like $150,000, $200,000 on books in, the, in a matter of hours, um, which is the sale in which Donowski acquired the copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass that had been owned by a friend of Whitman. That is one of the um, foundational kernels inside the Donowski collection. Because even though it's focused on the 20th century, there's also a lot of important 19th century material as well.
2: And so um, do you know, in, in, I mean, like, so Richard Aaron would get stuff, lots of it ship it to to Raymond Donowski. I mean, did Donowski, like, read what he got? Obviously, he couldn't read all of it, but did he, like, sort through the materials or did it just go into storage immediately? Yeah, the,
0: the thing that's unique about the Donowski collection compared to collections that have a similar scope or approach the scope of the Donowski is that those collections had typically been built outside of institutions. So, like I mentioned, the Berg collection before, The Berg collection had been um, compiled as a private library, um, a so-called gentleman's library. And Donowski was really clear from the very beginning that he set out to not collect a gentleman's library. And that he also was avoiding um, the common collecting strategy where someone is really focused on a particular author, like a Joyce collector or Whitman collector, for example. He was really stockpiling um, more than he was collecting. Um, when you think about the scope of the material that he needed to bring in, it wouldn't be physically possible to handle that material as he began to acquire it. And even though he was collecting for 25 years, I mean, you really, it's hard for me to even understand um, the volume of actual physical stuff that was incoming for so long. Um, And it would need to be at that kind of ridiculous volume for one to actually have a collection that documented the entire 20th century and not just of poetry, right? But like I said, countercultural material, political material, small press, newspapers. So um, the material at first had been stored in this barn um, in rural England, but I think pretty soon after that, the material moved to a warehouse in Switzerland and was um, stockpiled there um, over the course of the decades. And it's really coming in, um, uh, you know, from all over the world in crates and boxes with invoices in them. And, you know, the, a lot of those crates, almost all of that material was never opened. So it was being sent to these locations after it was purchased by Donowski and, and being stockpiled. And I talked about this in the seminar over the course of March. And it was really interesting. Um, actually to externalize that story to other people, because I've known that for a while, but um, it struck some people as kind of strange to hear that someone had spent so much time and so much money doing this work not to interact with material in a personal way. It struck some people as kind of just strange, like, what is your relationship to this material if you're not going to handle it, if you're not going to have a relationship to it? And I think that the answer here is really unique because what Donowski was imagining was a collection that would be a resource at a university for students and for scholars in the future. And that he, while his name is attached to the collection and while he had the initial vision, he knew from the beginning that the responsibility of really owning the collection in the sense that, you know, being a person who uses it and translates it into scholarship, into teaching, didn't belong to him but to other people. And that's the difference in the Donowski collection um, compared to some other
2: literary collections um, that are well-known across the country. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I think there's some, something of the obsessive in that kind of collecting mission, too, in a good way, right? And that it's clear, you know, in my experiences with the collection and thinking about it, um, seeing the scope my office, when I used to be up at the Rose, was adjacent to the Donowski. So I could look at the stacks every day and pull something off the shelf. Um, always a mystery, as you well know, uh, going back there. There's still uncataloged material as well, a lot of it.
0: Right, absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned being obsessive. I think, like, there... You know, all, all of the major collectors of the 20th century have been obsessive, um, like the poetry collection at the University at Buffalo was built by Charles Abbott starting in the mid-1930s, and, you know, his obsessive process was to actually write to individual authors to solicit archival material from them. Um, so send us what he called your worksheets. Um, Allison Frazier, who's the assistant curator at Buffalo Poetry Collection, um, wrote this incredible um, little history. Um, that was published last fall. She describes Abbott's process of soliciting archival material, um, which was a new practice at that point. Um, The sense of archives that we have now is really a 20th century phenomenon. And, you know, so Abbott's collecting for Buffalo starts in the mid-30s. He's collecting individual drafts of individual poems, one at a time sometimes. You know, so 40 years later, when... Donowski has this idea to build a 20th century collection, there's really the sense that it couldn't have been done prior to then Um, and that this obsessive vision had to take place over the last quarter of the 20th century and really became this contemporary project into the late 90s uh, where you're collecting material as it's being released. Um, Yeah, so it's all-consuming. Uh, it's (laughs) overwhelming in a physical sense. And like you're saying, there's still thousands of uncatalogued um, books that are in the stacks on the 11th floor.
2: So if we could circle back for a second to, um, clearly the poetry was the emphasis and focus, um, but there are other kinds of materials. The countercultural materials that you mentioned are not insignificant. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about sort of how those those materials that are maybe adjacent to poetry or related to what Richard Aaron had said about wanting to expand toward sort of the more experimental strains, the underground strains, the mimeo and small magazine little magazine worlds like so there's a sense in
0: which the Raymond Janowski poetry library you could understand it as a a little bit of a misnomer in that it doesn't just contain poetry um, but all of this other material. And some of that material has typically been um, thought of as extra-literary, which is to say it's if if one were writing a literary history of the 20th century, it might not be included um, because it's adjacent or it's associational, um, but not central to the work itself. And the way that we've studied literature for most of the second half of the 20th century um, through a new critical lens has really valued the poem by itself, which is to say the poem in a published book um, outside of a historical context. And it's taken the interventions of a lot of different kinds of people, scholars, um, curators, collectors, students, teachers, to reimagine how we write and think about 20th century literary history, that it might include um, material like Um, little magazines and alternative newspapers, and that a conversation about literature isn't just about a singular poem on a page, but about um, a set of associations and a network of different voices um, across different aesthetic and geographical communities. And it did take Richard Aaron's focus on the 1960s and 1970s avant-garde communities to make that a reality in the Danowski. Um, uh, the one thing that Richard did say to me, and he said it almost as if he were apologizing, um, you know, he said that he's aware that the Danowski collection has a stronger focus on the 60s and 70s than anywhere else. But to me, that's what makes the Danowski so indispensable because so much of the literary history of that moment um, 50 plus years ago still needs to be written. And the Danowski is the place where that literary history is going to emerge. So what makes it so unique is that you can read all of this material, but then you can can read the poems in correspondence with the cultural material that surrounds it, and you're not moving between different repositories in order to do that. And one of the defining characteristics of literary um, archives in the 20th century is that you're always going to be working with split collections, which is to say that if you want to see all of an author's work you're never going to find it in one repository. So you're always moving between different reading rooms, different libraries, different collections. And that's really challenging, um, both financially, geographically, um, and intellectually. And a collection like the Danowski and the Rose Library in general offers such a breadth of different kinds of work that you're able to be a completist in your work in one location. Um, it's not that there aren't still gaps. Um, that are, you know, permutations of the original gaps that Donowski identified in the early 70s. But there's an opportunity for a kind of completist work um, and for a lot of, you know, to focus in on some micro areas inside of this, this snowflake and to write these new literary histories.
2: I want to start with the question, if you think about the 20th century, you know, as a series of decades, let's say, it seems the, fo- the, the pro- probably the sh- real strength would be the 60s and 70s in terms of scope of collection. But can you talk a little bit about other strengths in terms of perhaps periods and also where you found um, in your research uh, some gaps, some things that definitely still need to be filled in, which can lead us eventually, I think, to the question of what is the 21st century going to look like in terms of a Danowski mission? Huh? The, one of the
0: things that's really unique about the Donowski, I don't think I can answer so much in terms of time period, but in terms of the kinds of materials. So one of the most incredible aspects of the Donowski are the little magazine holdings. Um, as I noted before, we have over 55,000 individual periodicals from 7,000 different titles. And that includes little magazines, um, so-called because um, they had... they. They were smaller in size and also had small distribution networks. Um, that's the name that they acquire in the early 20th century, um, wrapped up in the uh, mostly in the European and American avant-garde scene. And but that little magazine culture extends all throughout the 20th century. And though um, modern periodical studies tend to cut off at 1950, beginning in the 1960s with the um, widespread use of mimeograph machines and other um, easy-to-use duplicating technologies, there's really this um, incredible expansion of the small press publishing scene in the United States and in Europe. Um, The Donowski includes that material in a way that is not reproduced in any other collection, which is to say that my my sense is that the Donowski is the place to study post-1960 little magazines. And so much of that material has not been accounted for in scholarship. Um, If it is mentioned, it usually ends up in footnotes um, or in a list of different publications that occurred in a different place um, that involved various well-known writers. But the Donowski allows you to see the little magazine culture of post-1960 Anglophone poetry in correspondence with this earlier little magazine culture of the early 20th century. And for the most part, those two areas of publishing have been cut off from one another. And there are a lot of institutional reasons for that. But the Donowski offers a vision of, of continuity between those two areas of publishing, which is really vital to be accounted for.
2: Can you talk about, in your specific research, uh, which is, you know, your writing um, has, uh, your scholarship has relied heavily on Donowski Holdings. Can you walk us through maybe one or two specific findings? You've, you mentioned how you got to the Donowski, which is a great story about the Barrack and Crossout novel. But can you talk a little bit about uh, an instance or two of scholarship you've done and, and very specific materials from the Donowski
0: well, one of the things that's apparent when you work in a collection, as capacious says the Danowski, is the amount of material that you come across by authors who are well-known, um, maybe not even canonical, but you know their work. And when you're looking through the little magazines especially, you're finding a lot of material by these authors that is new to you um, and maybe is going to be new to a lot of people because it only circulated in that original publishing context. So I remember early on I was looking at this little magazine um, called Brilliant Corners, which was edited by Art Lang out of Chicago in the 1970s. And I had started this little magazine inspired by Berrigan's emphasis on right, one of his pedagogical goals was to get all of his students to start little magazines. And he Lang's magazine, Brilliant Corners, published not just poetry, but also a lot of material related to jazz in the music scene in Chicago and to other art forms. And there's this incredible essay that I came across by the poet Alice Notley, who was married to Ted Berrigan. And it was an essay about her time living in Chicago, which was only for a few years, and her visits to the Art Institute of Chicago. And she would go to the Art Institute by herself as a way of really just getting out of the house. Um, She had just recently graduated from her MFA program at the University of Iowa with an MFA in fiction, actually, and had married Berrigan, and they were living in Chicago, and she's a young mother, and she had the really distinct sense, as she described to me, that she was at risk of not being a poet in these circumstances, these material circumstances, which were very gendered. You know, Ted Berrigan is the poet out in the classroom and she's at home taking care of kids and so she would she got herself a membership to the art Institute and this essay documents this process of visiting the art museum and looking at paintings and letting herself learn about a history of 20th century visual art through this um, embodied practice of moving back and forth through the galleries and this essay is just Absolutely beautiful, it's graceful. Um, It moves between prose and poetry. It's lineated in these really idiosyncratic and incredible ways. And I immediately recognized its value in helping us to reimagine the narrative of Notley's work. Um, She became really well known in the 1990s for her epic, um, The Descent of Alette. But she had been publishing for 20 years before then. And here was this essay that I was encountering for the first time that describes this embodied practice of, of writing and thinking in relation to an entirely different medium, um, of visual art. And so, um, I worked with Alice to transcribe the essay, um, which is a really incredible process to work with her in this way, recreate
2: this text. Did revision happen from her end?
0: No, there was like one typo from the original, okay. which is also, you know, something that happens in, uh you know, mimeograph magazines from the 70s. But I asked her if, um, I said, this essay is, like, really distinct, but it also seems related to some work that you did in the 80s and into the 90s as well. And she said, oh, yeah, I have, like, so many essays like that um, that are just sitting here I never published. (laughs) But, um, and that's the kind of, those are the kind of quote-unquote discoveries um, that you make all the time. So we worked and we we put that essay uh, Brought back into publication at the journal ASAP J, along with an essay by me that is about her essay. And um, those moments are really important, not only because you have the sense as a scholar that you're able to really do important work adding um, new material into the conversation about well known authors, um, but also that there's always going to be more of that work to do. And that's one of the things that's so exciting to me and as a scholar and as a teacher and working in the archives is that there's always new material, new to you, that, he, that you can bring back and, and put in front of students and initiate different kinds of conversations. So really, in a sense, there's nothing new about my scholarship and that almost all of the people that I write about have been written about before. But when I say that, I mean their name might appear once in someone else's book. And so the work of archival scholarship is, is this kind of bibliographic attention to going back over the record as it exists and insisting nearly everything we think we know, there's an entire other set of stories there. And the archive is where we're going to find those stories. And in, in a, a scholar with a different focus might come to the same material with an entirely different Um, associative argument in mind about how to use that material and where to situate it and what kind of conversation it instigates. So that's the kind of endless um, flowing work that comes out of all these primary sources.
2: On one of the um, presentations you gave on the Donowski, you brought a couple of students in uh, who had done primary document research in the Donowski. And I wonder if you could uh, just touch a little bit on... What they, what they talked about, but also your experiences in bringing students to the rows, to the reading room, and the kinds of, you know, I was really struck by their interpretations of the material, right, and what they learned. You know, for them, it's like completely new. I mean, these weren't even necessarily students of literature, right, and English lit, and so they're discovering, you know, poetry in 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 the most general sense, and then they're discovering. The, the iterations and the context, but um, they had wonderful ways to talk about that. So I, I, I'd i love to hear more about how the Donowski has has been worked for you in terms of your own teaching and your student discoveries. And then after that, I'd like to um, talk a little bit about your scholarship and where you're headed and what you anticipate you might continue to do. As far as you can see, it'll probably never end, is my guess. Um, you're going to be in the Donowski uh For for, for decades and decades, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a great thing. But yeah, if you could start with students and then we'll move toward um, an overview of your scholarship.
0: Yeah. So one of the reasons why the Donowski Poetry Library came to Emory in 2004 is because of Emory's commitment to making the Donowski a teaching library for undergraduate students. And really, not just for undergraduates broadly, but for freshmen in particular, And that was the argument that Ron Schuhard made to Raymond Donowski in the conversations they were having about where Raymond might house the collection. And that was what really brought it here. And so for me to participate in that lineage of teaching from this material is really an incredible honor. And compared to other literary collections in the United States, the Donowski is still really young, (laughs) Um, that it's only been open for research um, since um, the 2000s, makes it a collection that still needs to be explored uh, on so many different scales. So teaching from the Donowski is actually sort of essential for us as scholars um, and for understanding what we have um, and what can be done with what we have. When I was teaching at Georgia Tech from 2017 to 2020 as a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication, one of my goals uh, was to bring students into the Donowski to do original research. And I had already been working in the archive for about three years then doing research. And um, I always think of my experience as an undergraduate history student working in archives from my very first semester in college and how much autonomy and agency that gave me as a student to feel like I could participate in creating um, our field of study, that it wasn't just um, interacting with received ideas, which is important for, um, you know, ones getting involved in a discourse. But as a student, you're eager to participate in a way where you feel like your voice and your interests are, are important And archival research is a way to advocate for that desire that students have where you can say, yes, absolutely. Like, your interaction with this material is important because, one, not many people have looked at this particular item, perhaps, but also because your perspective is important because the interpretive work is between you and this primary source. And... The opportunities that I had at Tech to do that were really, um, I mean, some of the most incredible and fun teaching that I've ever had had the chance to do. Um, at times, I would bring whole classes into the Donowski's classroom here on the 10th floor um, in the Donowski room, and it was just, it would just be amazing um, because we we're studying these poets in class, you know, reading them in the books. Um, I'm showing them some primary source material in the classroom, but... For them to actually get their hands on the material and have a direct physical and intellectual experience with it really um, energized them and changed their participation in the class. And these weren't literature classes. These are first-year writing classes with mostly engineering, computer science, and business students. Um, We don't have an English department at at Georgia Tech. Um, And so you might not think that those students would be interested um, or prepared for that work. But those would definitely be the wrong assumptions. Um, Students are eager to get their hands on material and to have these hands on experiential um, uh, interactions with, um, you know, things they don't have to know anything about 20th century literary history to participate in conversations in the archives. There's really no barrier to the immersive work of archival research because you can encourage students to think on such a micro level. Um, so, for example, the students that you mentioned that I had um, talk and visit and talk in the Donowski seminar earlier this month, um, we had a session called It Really Changes How You See Research, which is a quote from one of my Georgia Tech students about their experiences in the archives at Emory. And one of those students, she did a project on a this feminist punk poetry magazine from the 1970s called Koff K-O-F-F and it was edited by um, this editorial collective of of feminist women poets in New York City on the Lower East Side and she was interested in music which is why I suggested she do this project and she actually, um, her name is Catherine, Catherine's started to correspond with Eleanor Nowen who is one of the poets who edited the magazine. And they started this correspondence for the purpose of her project, um, which was a website that she created, a research-based website, Exploring cough and the um, punk bands that they started. They had one band called Homer Erotic. So you get a sense of the kind of material that she's dealing with from that band name. But her and Eleanor have since become friends, and actually became friends that semester, (laughs) like in the five weeks that she was doing that project. And um, Catherine had the chance to interview Eleanor and also Maggie Debris, who is another poet who edited Cough and was in these poet bands. And uh, Eleanor actually sent Catherine an original coffee, or copy of Cough for herself. And I remember the last day of the semester in office hours, Catherine brought this package that Eleanor had sent her in the mail. And I just was so happy. <laughs> just could not believe it. Um, that they had had this connection and that, you know, here was Catherine with an original magazine from the 70s that was now hers, her own personal copy. And that's an experience I've had as a scholar working in the archives. You really have an opportunity to reach out to these people um, individually and say, like, you know, dear Alice Notley, dear Maureen Owen, um, I was looking at this um, material today, and I have this specific question about it, and everyone has been really receptive to talking to me when you're when you're thinking about working with the materials in such an intimate way. And um, here was my student having a similar experience as a, as a first semester undergraduate. Um, and Catherine and Eleanor have even got to hang out in New York City in the East Village um, since that semester. So,
2: And I got to see them talk to each other. In the Zoom recording, yeah, it they fantastic. actually got to
0: talk to each other mm-hmm. in the in the in the Zoom seminar. Which you know, Zoom has been challenging for a lot of reasons, but to be able to bring them together in that space, absolutely incredible.
2: I think this is a good way, a bridge to your specific research again. But a lot of what you're doing and scholars in similar areas, and then the students reaching out, they're reaching out to people who, for the most part, um, not entirely, but have not had so-called canonical status, right? Like, by definition, so that it it takes us back to the importance of Richard Aaron's vision of collecting in these areas, um, that these are, in some ways, this archive, for example, is a place where they'll live on, but, of course, if the materials are, are not found and discovered in the archive, then they maybe, we don't know about them, at least for per- different periods of time, which makes the archive really interesting, um, and I, I want to sort of begin to close down by asking if you could talk about your, I assume you're pulling a book together. Um, if you could talk, give us a quick overview about it and what what you have left to do, if anything, where you're headed um, and what binds together your, um, your research. Coming out of the last question
0: um, about teaching the material, um, my focus on teaching the material with students and specifically students doing projects on little magazines, um, really helped me see or re-see, um, the scope of my scholarship and what, what my work would be. So because I had students every semester doing projects on little magazines, they were able to compile a lot of information on these little magazines. Um, at times it was almost like I had, these small armies of research assistants working in the afterlives of the new American poetry. Um, and students, you know, I would tell them repeatedly, like, you're working with material that no one has really accounted for. And they were like, oh, that's so cool. And I'm like, but you don't even know how <laughs> cool that is. Like, it is so cool. It is so important. Um, and they were able to, they're, like I'm talking about with Catherine and Koffe, interview these editors, um, many of whom had never been asked questions about the little magazines they published in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or even before that. And um, I had students also build these data visualization networks, so they would create these um, interactive visualizations of all the contributors to the magazines. So it's a way of seeing all the material in a magazine at one point in a visualization. So one of the challenges of working in archives is dealing with the sheer volume of material that you have in front of you, especially, I mean, I've had to, like, I, I, I experience myself as a organized person, but the kind of organizational aptitude that you need to deal with the volume of archival material that I've interacted with is just sometimes um, overwhelming <laughs> in so many ways, but it's one of the joys of doing it. Um, and... Through working with students and, and them helping me see this material in new ways um, and being in collaboration with them so closely with primary sources, um, my book project emerged directly from those conversations. And um, it's tentatively titled After the Last Avant-Garde, which the title itself is a kind of provocation referring to the scholar David Lehman's book, The Last Avant-Garde. The Making of the New York School of Poetry, which was published in 1998, Um, which is actually kind of, there's a kind of symmetry um, between the Donowski Poetry Library and my book project in that the scholarship on the new American poetry that we we live with um, now really started to emerge in the 1990s. So the work on, you know, post-1960, emerges about 30 years later. So there's always this this kind of embedded delay in literary scholarship. And um, that's exactly the moment that Donowski stops collecting um, in the late 90s. So there is this kind of, um, this pivot in the late 90s. Um, All of the scholarship on the new American poetry is starting to emerge. The Donowski comes to Emory. And it's almost as if the opening of the Donowski in the early 2000s is this invitation to revise those narratives that we had received prior to access to these kinds of archival records. The work of literary scholarship in my eyes is, is reading the last 50 years of literary scholarship and identifying the gaps in, in those narratives. Um, because it's not that we're missing the material. It's all there. Um, just not as many people as you would imagine has have thought to consult it and to treat it with the kind of power and um, agency that the material has. So that's what I'm I'm trying to do with this book, which is really focusing in on the New York School of Poets and Artists um, who have been identified as the so-called second and third generation New York School poets. But um, the New York School is really interesting because it's the only – school of poets coming out of the New American Poetry Anthology, published by Donald Allen in 1960, that has a generational um, lineage attached to it. It's the only school of poems described in generations. And what that's done is, um, in scholarship starting in the 1970s, you get um, some well-known poetry scholars talking about the second generation New York school. And that always is a way of describing them as secondary rather than inheritors of a lineage, um, as if it were kind of watering down of first-generation potency. And um, the poets who are part of these so-called um, subsequent generations of the New York School are some of, the most, um, some of the most important living poets still, people like Alice Notley and Anne Waldman and Bernadette Mayer, um, Ron Padgett, um, And then people adjacent to them like Amiri Baraka, Lorenzo Thomas, Allen Ginsberg, Peter Orlovsky, and also artists in different mediums like film and photography, Rudy Burkhart, Edwin Denby, um, and also musicians, people like John Cage. So there's this entire interdisciplinary avant-garde that has been gestured towards, but the really full scope of their work um, hasn't been uh, delved into And, um, you know, earlier before I mentioned about, like, a 30-year delay in scholarship, Um, I mean, there's actually more of, like, a 50- to 60-year delay. Um, And it's not that anyone is, you know, messed up by not accounting for it. There's so much to be done. But um, there's such an interesting, exciting story to be told about these small press networks starting in the 1960s and how they're rewriting the legacies of the earlier 20th century and jumping over um, different canonical groups in ways that we might not imagine. Um, So, you know, the way that we teach and learn poetry is still um, organized around anthologies for the most part. And um, anthologies are kind of the antithesis of the archive in the sense that um, anthologies are hierarchical, um, they're canonical, they're used to build canons and inherently erase other voices. And archives, in a certain conceptual sense, um, are anti-hierarchical, and you you can move back and forth between materials in ways that erase canonical distinctions. Um, you know, of course, there are going to be there are foundational problems in the record of 20th century poetry as it pertains to race. Um, there's a really important article by Jung Song Kim. Um, about the poetry collection at the University of California, San Diego, and its construction of what's called the Archive for New Poetry at UCSD. Um, and Kim's thesis is that newness, for the most part, in the later half of the 20th century, is a synonym for whiteness, which is true to a large degree. Um, Allen's New American Poetry includes one black poet, um, Amiri Baraka, and mostly men. So closer attention to these records, um, and not just looking at the Donowski really closely, but putting the Donowski in conversation with the Archive for New Poetry at UCSD, with the Berg, with the Poetry Collection at Buffalo, um, with the materials at the Ransom Center, um, individual author collections at the University of Michigan and Columbia um, and NYU. There needs to be this really... Um, extensive network of scholars in conversation with each other and sharing material so that we can account for these um, elisions and these erasures, which have been pretty systematic over the course of the 20th and into the 21st century.
2: Well, on that note, I think we might come to a close, Um, and I want to ask if we can do this again uh, maybe in season two, because there's a lot more to talk about. I think you end in a place where I'd like to begin, which is, um, you know, uh, collection strategy, uh, collection bias, collection elision, collection erasure that happens through um, buyers, through curatorial um, modes and through institutional uh, issues that have come up uh, and have been present, actually fully present for a long time, but we're talking about now in ways that we haven't. And I think that I don't want to um, short shrift that kind of conversation um, because it also would relate to another thing I really want to talk to you about, which is what the 21st century looks like in terms of the Donowski. Um, I think in larger sense, the you know literary and especially poetry and small press publishing world. Uh, has continued on, and it's just uh, often and largely online or digital formats, but not exclusively. Um, so would you be up for another conversation in season two?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I would say for anyone interested to start this conversation before you and I are able to talk again, that, that a really incredible book about this is um, John christophe Coutier's um, recent book, Shadow Archives, The Life Cycles of African American Archives, which um, describes how archival collections remain um in this um in these erased spaces so that they might they exist but um all of the various institutional and collecting and curatorial um and scholarly reasons why they remain invisible or out of circulation in scholarship um and not only is that an issue for the the time span that that he describes in the 1950s but continues um forcefully up through the latter half of the 20th century.
2: Well, I will see you in season two of Community Conversations, and I think it's appropriate to, because there's there's a lot more, I have questions still about how Donowski, um, the mechanics of collection, the mechanics of funding, you know, all these sort of really interesting mm-hmm. details, uh, it seems like it could be a full documentary. I appreciate the scope of your thinking about the Donowski as it relates to an English language, 20th century perspective on on the literary world. And one of the things I would also like to take up is how the Donowski, what is so special about it, is its emphasis on those who are creating small press publications, right? The editors mm-hmm. and the publishers uh, often are one person in an apartment. But that these are the kinds of things that if we only focus on canonical if we only focus on the big publishing houses and the big awards we're missing most of the really the 21st two but the 20th century of american literature it's just it's just uh it's so much in those in those weeds so we'll pick that up uh, a few months down the road i appreciate you being a guest today this was nick stern and this was uh this is the penultimate episode of season one of community conversations thanks so much nick
1: Community Conversations is produced by Lily Terrell and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chistenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, Jennifer King, Director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Nick Stern and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Join us next month for the final episode of this first season of Community Conversations, featuring a special guest. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Behind the Archives and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on the Rose Library Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Community Conversations and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.